Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with y'all. Um, my name is Sam Taft. I'll speak loud. I can speak loud. I've got two young boys, so. I've got two boys. I've got a wife named Ann. They love to be here this morning. But uh, they're both under two, at least for one more week. My oldest turns two next week. And so uh, it's just hard to travel with young boys this early. And so. Next time I come, I will bring them. Uh, my wife, Ann, and I are especially thankful for this church. She really wanted to be here this morning. Um, some of you don't know me, and some of you haven't met me, and yet you've been praying for me, and you've been sending my family cards. I'm fortunate enough to be blessed to be, uh, I don't know how you would say it, sponsored or loved on by, I think it is the Madison uh, community group uh, with Mike and Sally and many others. Uh, I just want to thank you. And I want to brag on that community group just for a second because they've kind of adopted my family and I. And over the past year and a half, ever since we moved to Murfreesboro, uh, they have been such an encouragement and a blessing to us. They really have. And so I was really excited when Richard asked me to come and preach here because there's been so many people who have loved on us so well that I haven't even met yet. And so afterwards today, I get the chance to do that. And so I'm very grateful. Um, and I'm very grateful, too, for this church. This church, uh, as a body, has supported RUF at MTSU for a long time. Uh, I'm the third campus minister to do ministry with RUF at MTSU. It's been around since 1999. Some of you know Fritz Gaines, who serves at Western Kentucky. He started RUF at MTSU, and so uh, it is really a joy uh, to do what I get to do. We get to reach students with the gospel, uh, but also a lot of what we are doing is actually preparing students for after college, to go serve in the church, to love the church, uh, just to be faithful in the communities that God will place them after college. And so thank you for enabling me and my family to do that. It has been a joy to serve in our second year, as Colin mentioned. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage in the Gospel of John, and I did not know until I was reading through your bulletin that this fits in pretty well with your adult Sunday school class. So if you're in the adult Sunday school class, you might be reading this passage thinking, oh, I know, I know what's coming. Uh, I saw that you're in the good hands of Sinclair Ferguson doing a video study through him, and so Oftentimes, you know, when you guest preach, you come in and somewhere and you just preach on a passage and then you leave. And so it's so hard for me to cover everything. But now I get to leave feeling pretty comfortable that if I don't cover something, uh, there's like it's likely that you will cover it or you have covered it in greater depth. Uh, we're looking at a passage that begins what is known as the farewell or the upper room discourse. It, it's it's Jesus preparing his disciples for a very difficult season of life, Uh, not only his death, um, but also the period of time of what they come to know as what it looks like for them to live in light of his death and resurrection. And so with that will come many joys, but also many trials and tribulations. And so they are in fear. One of my wife and I's favorite 
television miniseries. Uh, it's been mine for a while, and I've slowly brought my wife on to love it. Is a TV miniseries. It was actually done about, I think, about 14 years ago on HBO. It's Band of Brothers. Uh, what it does is it follows. It's not a documentary, but it, it follows a book by Stephen Ambrose that follows Easy Company, which is a company in World War II. Starts off with them in boot camp, and and you follow this company of soldiers from boot camp to D-Day all the way through to the end of World War II. And as you're watching this show, it's only about 10 episodes, um, but they're about hour long each. So you get to know these characters well, and you get to see relationships formed, and you grow to understand. And some of you, I know this, this is a military town, and so some of you are even more aware of this than I will ever be, but you see the trust that is so necessary among this company, not only amongst themselves, but especially amongst them and their leaders. And one of the crucial points in in this story, it's, it's, it's a true story, is when there's a leadership transition. This company of soldiers goes into battle. They're able to go into battle confidently because they have a leader in Lieutenant Richard Winters who they trust and they support. He replaced a guy that did not know what he was doing, who they could not trust and they could not support. And all of a sudden, Richard Winters takes the helm and he does an amazing job. He not only knows these men, but he, he's actually trained with them. He's come through the ranks with some of them. Well, about halfway through their tour in Europe, he gets promoted, which is a great thing for the army, but it's not a great thing for them. And so all of a sudden you see the men, they begin to have this pit in their stomach because they know the next time they go into battle, he will not be calling the direct shots. They know they've lost a leader. The army has grained gained a great leader. He'll become a major um, and will do great things. But for this company, you begin to see the pit in their stomach that the man that they trusted and relied on is leaving. And now all of a sudden, they're going to have someone new and it, it will be hard. The company will lose men. They will uh, be discouraged. They will go through a hard time as a result of this. Jesus here is having a meal. He's sitting down at the beginning of Passover week. And I think now, for the first time in the Gospels, it is becoming real to the disciples that what Jesus has been telling them is actually going to come true. He's been saying all along, I'm going to die, and on the third day I will rise again. And yet over and over again, the disciples think, no, 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 no. That's, that, that's not how... The Messiah will act. You're going to lead us to power and victory. And he will do that, but he's constantly doing things in a way that confuses the disciples. They want an earthly ruler. They want earthly power. And Jesus is going to bring authority and power, but he's going to do it in a way that is subversive. He's going to do it in a way that is shocking. He's going to do it through service. He's going to live a life of service. In fact, in the, in the rest of this 13 through 17, John 13 through 17, John will employ a lot of military language to actually describe what life is going to be like. It's going to be hard because the life of Jesus was marked by service. And because his life was marked by service, the life of his disciples and the lives of Christians forevermore will be marked 
by service. And it won't be an easy service. It will be one that will have joy, but it will also be marked by tribulation until Jesus comes again. But here's the thing, and we're about to read. In addition to performing an amazing act of service, Jesus here is cementing his identity as the Son of Man who came to serve and not to be served. He's again reminding his disciples who he is and what he came to do. But as we'll see, he's also telling them that if you are to follow me, it will mean following in my footsteps. It will mean following in my example. We see Jesus calling us to a life that is rooted in and that reflects the life of Christ, a life of joyful, persistent, and faithful service. So with that in mind, let me read John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus, or Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, very grateful for the fact of what we just read in our Old Testament passage earlier this morning, that you rule over all, that the heavens and the earth are in your hands, that you are almighty, that you are holy, and that you are righteous. Father, for as we know ourselves, Lord, we know that we are not those things. And so we take great joy and comfort in the fact that in the midst of our own weakness, 
our own frailty, our own sickness, our own rebellion, that we have a faithful and a just and a holy God who not only rules over this world, but who desires to know us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this moment in his earthly ministry, Father, that we would learn the beauty that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to wash away our sins. Father, we pray that you would unclog our ears and that you would open our eyes and that this morning, Lord, what we would walk away from here with is an encounter with you in your word. Lord, would you speak to us? Pour out your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine a scenario in which maybe this week you get a phone call from someone you respect. Maybe it's a mentor. It won't be Richard Schwartz since he's in Israel, but let's just say for when he comes back, he gives you a call. Or maybe someone else you know that's been a mentor or someone you respect. Governor Haslam, or you know, you can fill in the blank. They call you up and they say, hey, I want to have you over for dinner. Or maybe I want to come over to your house for dinner. And before dinner, they say, you know, the flu's been going around. And one of the things I like to do for people is to, to bathe their hands before we eat. And so they come around and they start applying soap or hand sanitizer. And they start washing your hands before you eat a meal. I don't know if you've ever had someone do that for you. Um, I can think of maybe one opportunity that someone had to do that, and it was a little bit strange. Um, we typically wash our own hands. Our hands typically are the dirtiest part of our body. And so when, when someone else offers to wash our hands, that's a very personal and in our culture, pretty unusual practice. What Jesus does in this passage is actually even, would have been considered even more unusual than someone coming to offer to wash your hands. Jesus and his disciples live in a culture where they wore sandals, not because Birkenstocks and Chacos were cool to wear, but that's just what that, that's what they wore. They walked on streets that were not paved. Palestine was a Roman colony, but did not enjoy much. It wasn't like walking in downtown Rome where they did have a lot of paved streets. These were streets uh, that didn't really have the greatest uh, sewer system, drainage system. And so for people like Jesus' disciples who were following Jesus, all over the country, uh, these were men whose feet were very dirty. Most people's feet were very dirty at this time. If you ever had someone over to your house in this culture, you had a bowl of water, and not during dinner, but before dinner, they, you know, you would have a servant wash their feet. Their feet was covered with dirt, but it was also covered with all sorts of other things that ended up on the street. You have to remember these were a lot of animals. You get the picture. I don't want to go into too much detail, but their feet 
were dirty, and, and this task was so menial and filthy that actually it was reserved for the lowest slaves, that, that actually it was reserved for slaves that were not Jewish. So the lowest of the low performed this service when you would come over to someone's house for dinner, and yet Jesus, as they're sitting down to dinner, gets on his knees, he takes off his outer garments and begins to wash his disciples' feet. This would have been an awkward and uncomfortable situation, no doubt, for the disciples. In fact, you don't really have many of them speaking. Jesus is doing all the talking here. You can almost imagine them looking at each other thinking, are you going to say something? You know, of course, Peter says, you know, Peter, who's always very quick to talk, eventually said something. But you can imagine the disciples looking around at each other wondering, what is going on? Why is he doing this? Uh, it's uncomfortable for us when we have someone serve us. We live in a culture that values accomplishments and uh, we live in a culture that, value, that values achieving and, and we like to do things ourselves. And so to have someone do something like this would be uncomfortable for us and it certainly was for them. That's why Peter in verse 6 says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And yet, isn't this so typical of Jesus? Even as we read in the passage before this, you'll read Jesus again in Luke twenty two twenty seven. He says, I am among you as one who serves. Philippians 2, which people say is often one of the best descriptions of Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul writes that Jesus did not count equality with God, but made himself something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The disciples are shocked by this. Peter especially is shocked by this. And yet it is characteristic of Jesus' ministry that he has come not to serve, but to be served. There was a famous missionary, or he grew to be famous. He wasn't famous when he was a missionary. Nelson Bell, who ended up being... Uh, Crucial in founding the magazine Christianity Today um, was married to a lady who grew sick very early on. He, he and his wife were missionaries, uh, I believe, in India. But when they returned, his wife got sick, and as she grew older and grew more sick, it, it was to the point that she could not do many of the things that we do ourselves, washing, getting dressed, driving. And so he began to do these things for her. Well, one day his daughter came up, and I don't think she quite knew exactly the extent of her mother's neediness and the extent of her father's service to her mother. And he came in and he she saw her dad putting on her mom's clothes, helping her put on her shoes, putting on her socks. He said, and she said, Dad, 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 let me do that. Dad, you don't need to do that. Let me help out Mom. And he responds, and this is his daughter recounting this incident, and he said to her, Stop it. 
Leave the room immediately because it is the greatest privilege I have to serve your mother. No matter how small the task, he delighted. It was a privilege for him to serve his mother. Jesus' greatest privilege is on full display right here. In submission to his heavenly Father, he is serving his disciples. He is serving them. He is performing an act that is humble. But then he says something interesting. Peter says, you know, Jesus, you wash me. And then Jesus says, you will not fully understand this until afterwards. You see, Jesus is doing something pretty amazing here, pretty unusual. But what he's saying when he says you will not understand until afterwards, he's not necessarily referring to after dinner. But what most commentators agree is that he's saying you will not fully understand what I am doing and what your need is until after the death and resurrection. Jesus is using how he so often does in the Gospel of John. He's using a physical act, a physical weakness to point to a greater spiritual reality. You think in John 4, he comes up to a prostitute who is at a well, and she's talking about how thirsty she is. And Jesus says, no, 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 you have a much greater thirst than your spiritual thirst. You've been going from man to man in order to find satisfaction, and that is only going to leave you more thirsty. You need to come and drink of my living water, and you will never thirst again. He meets a blind man. He meets a lame man. And again and again, what he is pointing out to these people and his listeners is that these physical weaknesses, the brokenness we see, in our physical maladies is actually pointing to a much greater spiritual reality. Peter needed his feet clean, but much more than that, Peter needed to be washed with the blood of Jesus. Peter had a much greater problem than smelly feet. And that's why Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Some translations might say you have no fellowship with me. Jesus is telling them, until you recognize that you need to be washed clean, you will not know what it means to be in relationship with me. And so what that means, here, there's a couple applications here. One, if you're not a believer here this morning, or you've been wrestling with the gospel, um, or you're not sure exactly what you believe, I think one of the essential questions you have to ask yourselves, and, and even Christians have to ask ourselves every time, is, is what do I do in the midst of my guilt? Where do I take my guilt? Even if I am, uh, by most American Southern standards, a good person, I'm respected. There are moments in all of our lives where we catch ourselves doing something, saying something, or thinking something that we would want no one on this earth to know that we did. Where do you go with your guilt 
and your shame. Jesus here says something profound. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is assuming something that we all know but we often suppress, and that is we need to be washed clean. And in the gospel, we have a Savior who not only can wash us but desires to. He comes willingly. It is a free offer. What this also means, though, is for the believers in this room, is that true Christian service, if we are to serve and to love, we must acknowledge our need to be washed. Not as a one-time event in our lives, Not that we need to be washed by Jesus' blood more than once, but daily we have to come to the grips with the fact that Jesus has done this. We must never lose sight of the joy of the moment in which we were saved. Now, Christian service, as we'll see here, is, is much more than that. But if we lose sight of the depths, and the lengths that Jesus went to die and serve us. We will never be able to serve and love our neighbor. That is our need to be washed. But then in verse 14 comes one of the harder passages. And actually, if you're going to the Sunday school class, John 14 through 17 Jesus is offering a lot of comfort, but Jesus will also say a lot of hard things to his people. He will set out very clear ground rules of what it looks like to abide in him. And here he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying, if you're going to call upon me as Savior, then something is going to change in your life, you will begin to serve. Your life will begin to look and mirror my life. In the gospel and in Paul's letters and in the rest of the New Testament, the gospel writers make it very clear that Jesus is not merely an example. Right here he says, I'm your Lord and your Savior But it is true that Jesus here does give us an example. He does give us something to follow in his footsteps, not in order to be one of his sons, not in order to gain his love, but in order to reflect his love, in order to grow in our knowledge of him, in order to bear fruit. We are given here an example. And so here he's saying, If you're going to be mine, if you are my sons and daughters, what I want you to do is do what I just did. 
And I, I, I don't think Jesus here is merely referring to washing people's feet. Although maybe the disciples went on and did that. But what Jesus here is setting a pattern for a love that is unlike this world. That goes against the grain of culture. That goes against the grain of our own comfort. He's saying, I want you to go and love like that. A servant is not greater than his master. He says, you know, you've called me Lord and Savior. That's true. Now here, this, this is what this is going to look like in your life. I want you to go and love in a way that is radical, that goes against the grain. Now I must admit, when I hear phrases and words like that, I think, okay, well, good. I do need to do that. I need, okay, well, if I'm going to love like this, I probably need to go somewhere that is lacking the amenities that um, first century Palestine was like. I need to go on that mission trip. I need to go uh, to New York City or Honduras or somewhere where it's impoverished. And you know what? God may very well be calling you to those places, but to do something like Jesus here is calling does not require that. I mean, you think about Jesus' ministry, it's amazing. Jesus places a great emphasis on world missions and calls people. Praise the Lord that we have those, but it's interesting. Jesus never leaves Palestine. He, he travels around and ministers to the people, and so one of the ways that we can follow in his footsteps of loving people in a way that models after Christ's pattern is to actually seek after the people in our own communities, in our church, in our neighborhood. There are people that are hurting. There are people that are broken. There are people that are lonely. And you know, the past month, as Colin mentioned, it, it's a mixed bag. It, 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 this is such a great season of celebrating Christ's birth and looking forward to a new year. And yet at the same time, so for some of you, this is an annual reminder that a loved one is not with you. Or that you don't have someone to love yet. And so this is hard, and there are people that are hurting in our communities. There's people that are hurting in this church. I don't, I don't know this church, but in a room this big, I, I think it's a fair guess to say that there are people that are coming here this morning hurting and broken. And one of the ways you can follow in the footsteps of Jesus is, is maybe even beginning just by praying, Lord, would you open my eyes to the needs of others? We live in a very busy culture. We can be busy without actually really doing much. We can be, our minds can be very busy, whether it's on a smartphone or television, so much so that it's actually... Part of the reason we don't reach out to people is often not because we're rebelling against reaching out to people and loving other people. It's just that we don't think. And, and so what, one of the ways we can do that is just beginning to pray, Lord, would you open up my eyes to the people that are hurting in my community? Would you open up my eyes to the people that I can love, that I can extend your grace to? There might be some of you in this room thinking, oh, well, I'm not much good at anything. Uh, I'm not really talented. Or just not really, I'm not really good relationally. I don't have great people skills. Or I, you know, I'm not 
I'm not very talented. There's no way I could be of any use to someone that's hurting. And yet, isn't it interesting that throughout the scripture, God actually not only approaches those sorts of people, but ends up using them. You know, you have Moses who likely had some sort of speech impediment, and, and over and over again, he's like, uh, God, are you sure you want to use me to speak to these people? Um, you having him pursue David. All of his brothers are like, that's our runt, annoying brother. You know, are you sure you want to do that? And over and over you see God taking someone like Abraham in his 90s, and yet he says, you know, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, God taking weak people and by his grace actually using them in the lives of, of other people. You see that in Paul's own life. Over and over again, God using our weakness to make his greatness known. God here is calling us to a love that is countercultural, and it's hard. It is very hard. Our culture says, you know, when you're in a group of people, or you have a community, there will be certain people that you kind of like naturally click with. And we're constantly pressed to kind of just associate ourselves with those people. These people have the same interests as me. These people laugh at my jokes. These people respect me. I'm going to hang out with these people. I feel better about myself after I hang out with these people. And yet Jesus here is pursuing a people that are difficult. You know, there are people in your community that are difficult. There's people in your workplace that don't respect you. There's people in your workplace that are actually, you, you might wonder if they just enjoy putting others down. Is that, is that where they find their joy? There, there might be people in this church that are hard to get along with sometimes. There may be people that you want to go on vacation with. And then there may be people that you pray they never ask to go on vacation with you. Jesus here is calling us to serve these types of people. Look at whose feet he's washing. In verse 2, he's washing Judas Iscariot, who's about to betray him, is included in this group of people. You have Peter who will deny him three times. No, Jesus, yeah, no, I didn't, I don't know him. Uh, you have his disciples who at Jesus' greatest hour of need are falling asleep and abandoning him. And yet, this, these are the people whose feet Jesus are washing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus calls us to go and do likewise. And this is hard because, look, if you're like me, our first instinct is, okay, well, I'll go love or I'll go serve someone. Um, I hope someone sees me do this, you know, or we want to be, we want to serve or love people in a way um, that brings us recognition, or we want to be love in a way that would draw respect. And yet you hear, you see Jesus performing an act that even the lowest slaves would avoid. We want to be praised and admired for our service. 
And yet the description of Jesus we have in Isaiah is that we have a Savior who is despised and rejected. Jesus was mocked and he was spit upon. The Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. And this is our Savior. This is who has redeemed us and who has called us into fellowship and who has called us to follow him. Now maybe you're thinking, um, I've had some pretty ambitious New Year's resolutions and I've failed at those and I've had some unambitious New Year's resolutions and I've also failed at those. And maybe you're thinking when you read this love, I have certainly not loved like that. I've avoided people who I know need to be served. I have consumed my thoughts with me, my work, my family, my needs, my hunger, my comfort. How... How can I even begin to serve like this? And yet you, you hear Jesus saying to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing. Later you will understand. Jesus there is pointing to his death and his resurrection. And, and you see, on the night when Jesus was betrayed and the following day when he's being crucified, Jesus does not come with a bowl. Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath. Why? Because Jesus is taking on the sins, past, present, and future of a people who have not and will not love perfectly. Isn't it interesting? Jesus washes his disciples' feet and then tells them to go and do likewise. And, and, and the same is going to be true for us. We will not be able to love perfectly in this life. And yet that is no, that is no need for despair because Jesus has promised, and he'll promise later in this upper room discourse that you'll get to in probably a few weeks, where Jesus sends a helper. He has poured out his spirit. And so because of that, because of his great sacrifice, because he has desired and has taken great joy in serving and even dying for our sins, we are now free to go and love others. We are free to go and serve others. Are you willing to come to Jesus in the midst of your busyness? In the midst of your hard-heartedness, in the midst of your pride? in the midst of your refusal to be washed, are you willing to humble yourself before him and say, Jesus, I need to be cleansed. I need to be washed. Daily, I need to see my need 
to be washed. And, and what you'll discover is that as you come to God every day, is, is that you'll discover actually just how deep your need is. That is one of the hardest things about the Christian life. It was so encouraging. Last year, we had a student who came to MTSU as an agnostic, uh, wanted nothing to do with religion, and got invited just to a random lake day that we did. And he came, and as a result of that, started coming to church, and within a few months was converted. You know, he said to me one day, I think I'm being converted. And so I said, well... Let's talk more about that. And so we did. And, you know, he was baptized last year and is now one of our most faithful members. But one of these conversations I keep having over and over with him is he is a he's an absolute perfectionist. And so he had any time he sees a new sin in his life, he is absolutely shocked and discouraged and almost perplexed. And yet, isn't that true, that the more we get to know our Savior and His righteousness and His holiness, the more we will see our own sin. We will. It is true that we, we, the more we look at His service, the more our lack of service and the more our selfishness will be exposed. But what you will also see in those moments is that we have a Savior who is more willing to cleanse us then we are often willing to ask to be cleansed. We have a Savior who is more willing to cleanse us than we are willing to be asked to be washed. Praise the Lord. And so with that in mind, that actually does free us up to go into the lives of other people who are difficult. It frees us up to love our family and our spouse on a day that was really hard for us and on a night where we got even less sleep than the night before. And it actually frees us up to just to even be able to ask them how we might be able to help them. To take a moment to listen to the people that are hard to listen to. Even though we know it's going to, in, it's going to interrupt. It's going to cut into my time. My comfort. My whatever. And in this thing, Jesus closes this. And he says in verse 17 that as you do this... If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To be blessed is to know God and to know his character. As you do these things, you will see how great your need for a Savior is. And so as you start this new year, uh, what an amazing truth to rest in. And, and what an amazing truth to bathe in. Because without this, without the knowledge, without the truth that Jesus Christ has come to wash us, we cannot and we will not serve others. We cannot engage in gospel community until we know that we are those who need to be washed and have been washed. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this truth. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that we have a God who is almighty and powerful, and yet this same God has sent his Son from paradise to earth to rescue and redeem a people for himself. Lord, as we read this washing, Lord, we are confronted 
with two very big truths, Lord, that we need to be washed, that this world is dirty and in need of washing. And yet, Lord, we are also called to participate in that through serving others in our church and in our community. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would actually give me and that you would give Christ Presbyterian Church a delight and a joy in serving others because they know how well loved they are in the gospel. Pour out your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.